Are you ready to talk Padres baseball? We've got you covered. Now is the right time to bring back Padres Social Hour as we await the start of the regular season. Friar Faithful, get ready to sit back, relax, and join the conversation. Now, coming to you from everyone's homes around San Diego and beyond, it's Padres Social Hour with your host, Jesse Agler. Hey, good evening, everybody. Welcome to Padres Social Hour. It is a Wednesday evening. we got a fun one for you. Padre closer Kirby Gates will join us coming up in a little bit. We'll also chat with Rube Shambi of ESPN, uh, one of the guys calling these KBO games on ESPN. A very interesting situation, obviously. And some news notes and other fun stuff to get to along with your questions. So hit us up on whatever social media platform you are a part of on this evening. And we will answer those questions as they roll in. Very happy to be joined this evening by Annie Heilbrin. And Ben Higgins, a couple of uh, people that I'm very used to seeing around the ballpark. And I got to tell you guys, like, Annie, I'll start there. I mean, it's like yesterday we had Len Casper on, the Cubs announcer. Like, we're supposed to see him this weekend, see you guys all the time down at Petco. I got to admit, it's making me a little sad. I have to agree. Jesse, Ben, it's great to see you guys. I've been trying to keep this whole thing in perspective throughout the pandemic. Like, I know you guys have as well, but I've been hit, especially in the last few weeks, with feelings of just just kind of sadness, just not seeing the usual suspects around the ballpark. Um, I miss, most of all, just the conversations, like conversations in the clubhouse, yeah, conversations out on the field, but just conversations in the press box and conversations with you guys and all of the people that you see at the ballpark every day. So I really do miss that part, and, and hopefully we'll be moving towards something like that again soon. <laughs> You know, when we finally do get to be together in person, we're just going to have to carry little boxes around our head just to make us feel familiar because we're so used to now seeing each other in these rectangles all the time. We're always in a rectangle every time we see each other. It's um, <laughs> unfortunately I'm getting too used to it now. Yeah, no, that that's like an interesting part of it is it's becoming normal and uh, hopefully not a lasting normal by any stretch of the imagination. As far as baseball goes in the potential return, no real news today. Yesterday was a very newsy day. In fact, it kind of uh, got put out there just before we started our show yesterday about uh, the conference calls that had taken place uh, between the commissioner's office and a couple of owners, Ron Fowler included, according to one report, and the Players Association and their staffers and representatives. There was no meeting scheduled for today. So we did get to talk about it a little bit on the show yesterday, but certainly I think it's worth rehashing a bit here. Ken Rosenthal wrote this piece that went up, I think, late last night. And it kind of laid out what was discussed and what is expected to be discussed. And you see it right there on the headline of his story at The Athletic. They are going to submit health safety protocols to the union for input and approval. This is apparently an 80-page document uh, that is going to be uh, sent to the players, may have already been for the next time they get around to chatting with one another. It'll go over how we're going to keep you safe, supposedly. What's going to happen when you don't? Uh, when, when something you know unfortunate happens, if somebody contracts the virus, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so again, that's the report that this stuff will be handed over to the players or has been. Uh, they're going to talk about it. They're going to put their input. Um, guys, I got to tell you, Ben, I mean, for me, it's a very big relief after all the sort of public bickering uh, that took place over economics earlier in the week to see that they have decided to start with what I think is the ultimate thing to start with, because without health and safety, uh, the rest of it, unfortunately, doesn't matter at all. Yeah, it's a good point, Jesse. And while the financial discussion may end up being more contentious, um, it de- you're right, it doesn't make any sense to move on to the tougher part unless you can hammer this out first. Now, hopefully everyone's going to be on the same page here. No one wants anyone to get sick. Everyone wants to take you know every precaution possible uh, while safely playing baseball. So I would imagine that this is an area where players and owners are going to be able to come to an agreement. Get that out of the way first. Show everyone where your priorities are, and that is health and safety. And then you move on to the somewhat trickier discussion when it comes to how you you divide up a smaller revenue pot uh, for whatever is left here in the 2020 season. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think health and safety needs to be the top priority. I thought Sean Doolittle had a really good tweet thread about that the other day with some just really reasonable concerns, you know, everything from the things that we don't know about the virus to I thought it was cool of him to look at also not just the players, but everyone else who would be involved in getting this this to happen. Um, and what what would be their safety and health you know, protocol? How would they be protected? So um, I think the most difficult part in all of this is that it's a moving target. I mean, they're they're hopefully, yes, going to be able to hammer out and come to an agreement. And it sounds like they're talking to a lot of 
different health officials that are going to advise them in the right direction. And it seems reasonable that they'll be able to to come up with something depending on, you know, what's available. But, you know, you can only plan for so much when you don't know what's going to happen with this virus. So I think that they're going to do the best they can to try to find some some common ground for health and safety and then just continue to watch it and continue to try to hit that moving target. Yeah, and he just sort of alluded to it right now. It's really fascinating in that story. Ken writes how uh, both sides have hired, and, and including some agents on their own, have hired CDC personnel or former CDC personnel and other people who are experts in this field that, of course, nobody at baseball is is anything close to being an expert on to sort of advise and, and give uh, whatever kind of information they can about the plans that are being put forward. But Annie, you bring up a very, very good point. We can get every expert in the world in one room. You're not going to get a consensus opinion, I don't think, on many of the details that are probably going to have to be worked out. That's just the nature of this thing. And, you know, you hate to say it, but everyone's also got agendas. You know, there's different agendas based on you You hope that everyone that comes from the health side is on the right, you know, looking forward at a very ethical way, what's best health and safety wise, but it's, it's the way it is in any business. There's going to be different agendas for everyone, but hopefully, you know, they'll be able to really look at what's best for the players, what's best for the people involved. Um, and then move on to the finances, like you guys said, but just try to hammer out the most moral and right health and safety protocol that they can. Has anyone asked Doc Gooden what he thinks? I mean, he kept a lot of social distance and sent batters right back to the dugout, but way more than six feet away. Yeah, that's there's all kinds of ways to uh, to get creative about it. Uh, from a baseball standpoint, and I know that's probably the most interesting thing to talk about for most fans, uh, because, you know, I, I think the normal, casual, even hardcore baseball fan probably isn't going to go blow by blow with uh, CDC recommendations and with the economic conversations, but rather the on-field stuff. That also sounds like it's going to come a little bit later. But but Ben, and, and look, we've all talked about this a thousand times, I think, but it certainly sounds like the, the DH is coming just because of the scheduling, if nothing else, in addition to other things, obviously. Um, I guess to me, the most interesting question about that is, will it last forever? Is it going to be one of those situations where we say, hey, it worked in 2020, and now we're just going to have to like sort of get used to the DH forever across all of baseball? What do you think the chances are that we have seen the last pitcher bat in Major League history? Kind of like the uh, house guest that was supposed to stay for just like three or four <laughs> days, and all of a sudden, four months later, they're still looking through your fridge and still you know, occupying your guest room. The designated hitter might kind of just sneak its way into the National League via this 2020 pandemic season. And it is hard to get rid of things. Once uh, once they're there, you can try calling an exterminator and uh, it may not work. I do think since we had already before this started, Jesse, had heard the, had heard the rumblings and the trends that baseball kind of wanted a unified set of rules, everyone playing on the same page so they didn't have to have different requirements for each league. This probably could be the end of separate rules, meaning yeah, we might not see pitchers bad anymore in the National League. I have to add, like, you guys have seen it. Companies now are saying people aren't going to necessarily have to work in the office anymore. You know, they're saying, look, everything has gone so swimmingly during this pandemic. We don't really need people to come into the office necessarily, or we might not need them to come into the office all the time. And so I think to your guys' point, that's exactly what this situation reminds me of is, okay, this could work. And look, this worked out fine. So we're just going to keep on doing it. Who knew, who knew that six months ago we could have drawn a straight line from teleworking to the designated hitter, but now we can do that pretty easily. Uh, it tells you maybe everything you need to know about 2020. Uh, Scoutmaster here, he brings up, you know, I, probably a little bit in a funny way, you know, hey, if there's a DH, we want Framiel back. But I do think he hits on, Ben, a very fair baseball point is that National League teams did not go into 2020 thinking to themselves that they would have a DH, so they didn't build their rosters accordingly. Now, I think the Padres are probably about as well set up as any team in the National League in terms of who they've got as potential DHs. Uh, but nonetheless, it does feel like, and again, this is the millionth most important thing going on in the world right now, but it does feel like a little bit of a disadvantage, perhaps for some teams more than others, but for the NL clubs. I don't necessarily buy that argument completely because the designated hitter isn't some specialty position. It's just a guy who does less than everyone else on the field. They all have to hit. So presumably every team has players that can hit. Now, yeah, did did maybe a team or two pass on a guy in the National League because they didn't have a position for him? Sure, that is absolutely possible. But, I mean, everybody hits. So, you know, theoretically, any single any single player in the National League 
can be a designated hitter. I don't think we really know who's going to who's going to succeed at that position until they try. I mean, I think, you know, Josh Naylor seems like a, an obvious candidate for the Padres, but you put him in that role, you sit him in the bench. It's it's a different it's a different mental game. Will he succeed at it? I don't know. We'll find out, I guess, if, if they play the season with those rules. Andy, that's the thing we hear a lot from guys, too, is like they say it's not as easy as taking your normal at bats. Like there is a different, you know, sort of mental approach. Some guys will say it's like pinch hitting four times in a game because you feel so disconnected from the thing. So Ben makes a very fair point. It's not as easy as just like, all right, go up there and hit. Yeah, Ben makes a good point. Um, and I agree. Fran Mil Reyes, I don't think would be would have been traded if they knew the DH was going to be coming around, you know, the Ben in the next year or two. Um, I think that they would have kept him because that was the role for him. And that, that was a big reason why they traded him was to, they thought that would, he was more suited for that role. So I, I do think that teams will be at a little bit of a disadvantage, um, the national league teams, just because they don't necessarily associate that role. You know, they don't, they're not necessarily accounting for it all the time, but at the same time, Ben's right. You got to know how to hit in the big leagues. It's just part of it. So you, there's really no excuses for not being able to hit, but it is different. It's different for sure. You know, four, four pinch hitting at bats, I think is fair. It's uh, it's one of those things, I guess we'll wait and see. It's funny too, because I think a lot of us as fans, particularly people who follow the national league much more closely than the American league. And, and I certainly do, you know, we sort of in our heads, when we think DH, we think like, Oh, David Ortiz, but, but there aren't like 15 David Ortiz's in the American League. I mean, there are probably teams I, I could have gone back and looked at this before the show and I thought of it. But there were teams probably who last year got very little out of their designated hitter. You know what? There was one team I did have a note in spring training. I'm forgetting. They got like a 200 average out of their DH last year. So, you know, Ben Ben makes a fair point. You know, there could have been some you know roster manipulation and, and stuff or decisions that could have gone differently had the DH uh, knowingly been coming in 2020. But again, it feels odd arguing about this with everything else going on. But also, in a weird way, it feels like a nice relief to be able to argue about the DH right now <laughs> as a to vaccines and uh, antibody tests and, and everything like that. So that's kind of the latest uh, baseball and the players working. Uh, ben, the other one, I guess, that popped to me yesterday from all the different reports that stood out a little bit uh, is that it sounds like there's at least a soft deadline uh, that the two sides are trying to work with here of the next two to three weeks uh, basically because they say, all right, if this plan is going to work, we need to start the season in early July. We, we want to have three weeks of a training camp type situation, a spring training. Uh, and, and so in order to have the logistics lined up and to be able to organize everything, they only have a couple of weeks to try and figure this out. That certainly adds kind of to the stress level, I think, when we talk about all this. Yeah, it's always good to have a deadline, though, whatever you're starting in a negotiation, even if it's a kind of a fake one, adding urgency to get people to kind of compromise and make decisions is very helpful. If you if you say, hey, we've got forever to decide this, you know how long it will take forever. If you say we've got two weeks to get this done, it usually takes about two weeks. People just kind of fill the space that is given. If it takes a little bit longer than that, Jesse, I don't see why there's any reason that uh, they still can't get the season started in mid-July and maybe add a doubleheader or two or extend you know a little bit deeper into October, November, the playoffs and still play a baseball season. I think the last thing anyone wants to do is just completely pull the plug while there's still a chance to play baseball. So I wouldn't treat that deadline. You see, you called it soft. I think it's, I think it's quite soft and mushy. Um, it's just there to make sure that, you know, no one is saying, Hey, we got all the time in the world to get this done. It adds a little bit of urgency to these talks. Deadlines spur action, something uh, we talk about all the time when it comes to sports. Uh, very interesting stuff. Uh, you know, I, I saw a question kind of pop in. I, I lost it asking if you have to DH for the pitcher. Uh, in, in amateur baseball, college baseball, you don't. You can DH for anybody. Uh, but I believe the way the rule book is written for MLB uh, is that you do have to DH for the pitcher. So if you have like some great slugging pitcher and you want to let him hit, uh, that's, that's not an option if you want to use the DH in that game. Now, the other thing, and, and people might remember Bumgarner did this a couple of years ago in an interleague game. I want to say against Oakland, but it might have been somebody else. You don't have to DH. Uh, even if the rule is, is there, it's a completely optional sort of situation. Obviously, it doesn't happen very often that a team chooses to allow their pitcher to hit, um, but it has happened before. It's an optional thing, although, uh, like I said, I don't, I don't know how, how frequently that would be taking place in reality. All right, we're going to have uh, some fun here. We've been uh, doing a, a new thing the last couple of weeks, just reliving a great home run in Padre history, a memorable Jack, in fact, brought to you by Jack in the Box. This one, courtesy of Greg Vaughn. The home doctor. 
This one is hit deep down the left field line. It might be, and it is number 50 for Greg Barr. That was this week's memorable Padres Jack presented by Jack of the Box. Jack of the Box is open and ready to serve you all of your favorites at the drive-thru on the mobile app and with delivery. One lucky fan who checks in on social media during tonight's show will win a Jack Cash card. So let us know that you are watching. Last day of the season, Greg Vaughn. Ben, it's funny. I mean, we, we've heard, and Danny, obviously, like we've heard the story told uh, from those guys in 1998 a lot. It was it was definitely like, all right, is this thing going to happen? And and thankfully it did, because that's a that's a big, nice number 50. First of all, I used the Jack app today because that's what my kids wanted for lunch. Ordered, picked it up safely. Very easy social distancing. Second of all, I am a big fan of round numbers. And I remember going into that last day of the 1998 season with Greg Vaughn sitting on 49 and thinking, I'm not going to feel right unless he gets number 50, but also knowing Hey, it's just one game left. There's a really good chance he's not going to get number 50. And I remember it was more of a feeling of relief as opposed to elation when he actually hit that home run going, oh, he's not going to be at 49 at the end of the season. That just would have it wouldn't have computed with me. How can you get so close to 50 and not get there? So I was really glad when I saw that ball clear the fence in uh, Arizona. And it's one of those fun things, too, because it's like, you know, they clinched, you know, so you're like, all right, what's my reason to watch a game today? And for like a couple of weeks, Greg Vaughn gave you a very good reason to watch. Yeah, I agree. And it was cool. I mean, you were just happy for him. I think fans were happy for him. People were happy for him. And I agree with Ben. It was more like relief, but it does. I mean, obviously 50 rings different than 49. And for it to happen at the end of the season was kind of like a storybook ending, you know, for, for it to go down like that. So it was really cool. I remember just the excitement that people had for Greg Vaughn at the time. One of my favorite guys to catch up with. Uh, he still lives up in Sacramento. We see him at Petco pretty uh, regularly. And uh, Greg Vaughn, number 50, our memorable Jack of this Wednesday. Uh, another thing we've been doing on Wednesdays is uh, Padres in the community and just trying to highlight one of uh, the many great community partners that the Padres have. These have been, I think, really awesome interviews. Uh, not necessarily, I think, what maybe people might expect from a show like this, whatever a show like this is, but I, I think great information being provided and obviously a time right now that is different than any other time in, in all of our lifetimes. And you have a lot of these different organizations trying to do the wonderful things they always do, but now with obvious added challenges and in some cases added numbers. That's certainly the case uh, for Mama's Kitchen. Alberto Cortez uh, is uh, one of the main men behind that wonderful organization. And I checked in with him earlier this afternoon to see how things were going and to find out how we can help. Alberto, thank you so much for joining us and for everything you're doing in this community. I, I think probably the best place to start would be, uh, let's say someone watching or listening uh, doesn't know much about Mama's Kitchen. What can you tell us about the organization and, and what you're able to accomplish here in San Diego? Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity of being here. Mama's Kitchen has been around for 30 years. Actually, we'll be celebrating our 30th in September. And we uh, are a nutrition service organization that's very much community-based. We have many volunteers. We depend on the community on the community support to provide our nutrition services that are focused on people who have critical conditions like cancer, HIV, diabetes, heart disease. We provide medically tailored meals that are home delivered to individuals with the intent of not just nourishing them, but actually improving their health outcomes. Every year we send out literally hundreds of thousands of meals. This year, we anticipate um, by the end of our fiscal year providing close to half a million meals through uh, to San Diego County residents. So um, we're looking to make a continue to make a huge impact in the community. Yeah, it's remarkable. I read an article that this past fall you delivered your nine millionth meal in those twenty nine and, and thirty years. Like you said that comes out this year at almost half a million. Uh, that that's absolutely remarkable. How have things changed? with the current health situation as it is in terms of the way you guys yes. are able to facilitate? So we, you know, we've been tested and I, and so far we've passed the test, but uh, we have increased uh, the number of clients that we're serving by over 60%. We don't have waiting lists. People who need our services are referred to us. The importance of our services within the context of COVID-19 is the fact that the people that we serve that, that our mission serves are folks that are at high risk of complications 
should they become infected with COVID-19. So there is a greater demand for us to provide home-delivered, medically-tailored meals to these individuals so that they can keep the risk of exposure as low as possible. So we're more relevant and essential in the community than ever. The increase and demand for our services has been uh, pretty dramatic, and I'm grateful to say that thus far we've been able to respond to the needs as they come in. I'm so glad you've been able to. Your your passion for this is obviously uh, serious and significant. How how did you become involved? How long have you been there now? So I had the privilege of being in the leadership role of this organization for close to 18 years now. Um, I'm I'm grateful that they've given me that opportunity. And um, but the work that we do is truly uh, the work of many. It really is a collective community effort. And our ability to do this is because we have so many amazingly dedicated individuals involved, whether it's in supporting the organization through a gift or supporting the organization as a volunteer. Uh, We have an amazing board of directors and a core group of paid staff that are absolutely extraordinary. Now, you remind me of the uh, the star baseball player when you ask him after a game, hey, you know, what about that game winning home run? And all he wants to do is talk about his teammates and his coaches and all the people that helped put him in that position. Uh, it's, it's beautiful humility. Uh, you kind of mentioned in passing there the different ways people can become involved and help. Uh, so somebody watching right now, somebody listening right now, they say, wow, that's uh, that's a tremendous thing and so important. What can they do and how can they yes. do it? Great question. Yes. So people are welcome to volunteer. Um, Our biggest need is drivers, volunteer drivers. I know there's a pool of people out there that are either working less or working from home and might have more time now. They might want to consider um, delivering food for us. We deliver food on Tuesday and on Fridays. Um, We have currently about 57 routes that need to be delivered. We deliver throughout San Diego County. Um, and uh, the delivery windows are generally about two hours of time where deliveries are made to be between 10 and 15 individuals. Um, we currently have close to 700 people that we deliver food every, every delivery day. So um, having people that are willing to volunteer in that last step of the process of actually getting food to people is um, is my recommendation to the community for for involvement. And um, there is evidence to suggest that people that volunteer in the community live longer and happier lives. Well, check out the website uh, to get the information on how to sign up. A lot of good detailed information there. It's a good site. I was uh, browsing it earlier. And, and I found out this week, too, the Padres volunteer team has uh, been involved in the efforts, which is nice to hear. Yes, they have adopted a route, and we're immensely grateful for that. So uh, thank you for bringing it up. <laughs> oh, absolutely, and, and thanks for uh, for having us. Uh, that program is also a, a stellar pillar in this community now. Uh, Alberto, thank you so much uh, for everything, obviously, you're doing uh, to help folks here in San Diego. As you said, it is important now as it's ever been, maybe more so. Uh, for a lot of folks who who aren't comfortable or aren't safe to leave their homes. Yes. And uh, and thank you for your time coming on and telling us all about it. Thank you. And thank you for the work that you guys are doing in creating awareness in our community. I appreciate that. Alberto Cortez of Mama's Kitchen, our uh, Padres in the Community feature on this Wednesday. Thanks to Alberto for the time earlier today. You saw the website, mamaskitchen.org. Uh, a lot of different ways you can help make a, make a great uh, piece of involvement there for yourselves. Bring Ben and Annie uh, back in here. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm just feeling like soft and emotional today. Like I said, I was I was getting sad, missing Len Casper and seeing you guys at the ballpark. Uh, this one hit me, too. I mean, it seems like the exact right kind of organization uh, that we need to be talking about right now, Andy, with uh, so many people uncomfortable or unsafe, uh, unable to, to leave their homes. I mean, meal delivery for the most vulnerable. It's uh, it's stellar work they're doing. Yeah, that was a great interview. And I mean, you said it half a million meals to San Diego. These are the people that make San Diego the amazing place that it is and and help it run with people that that need their help, you know? So I thought it was really cool too, to hear that the Padres volunteer team has also joined in on the effort. But um, during this pandemic, I think he said, what, 60% increase, you know, for, for the amount of people to come together and make that happen, that's just exceptional. And I don't think, I, I agree with you, Jesse, I'm feeling a little soft and mushy about it too, because I just, I think it's just reflective of everything that's gone on during this pandemic, just the way that people have helped one another. 
I remember when I was uh, younger, I would go with my grandmother. She would deliver meals to the elderly people who were shut in. And it, you know, I'm sure as a kid, I would have rather been outside playing, but it always struck me how happy they were just to see another human just at the door, even if it was just for a minute or two, uh, that it really seemed to like change their day and change their lives. So it's always important to remember how important that is. And not all of us have the ability to go out down the street and, you know, grab takeout even at this point or go to the grocery store. And it's so great that, um, you know, we're trying to think of everyone during this time. Yeah, very, very nicely said, uh, both of you. So thanks again to Alberto Cortez of uh, Mama's Kitchen for joining us. All right, back to baseball. Uh, The date was uh, May 13th. It was 1979. Randy Jones was on the hill for the Padres. Obviously, he's out there doing his thing. He's throwing his sinkers. This is the 11th season in Padre history. But then Randy did something that no Padre pitcher had ever done before on this date in 1979. This is one of the best trivia questions you'll ever come across. He stole a base. Randy, on this date in 1979, became the first Padre pitcher to get a stolen base. I don't know, like, you know, before researching this, if somebody would have said to me, Jesse, how many different occurrences are are there in Padre history of pitchers stealing bases? I don't know what number I would have come up with. I'll I'll, I'll throw it out to you guys, Ben and Annie. Uh, But we have the full list coming up, so we won't leave anybody hanging. But we can all play this game together, perhaps. In, In your mind, think, how many different times do you think a Padre pitcher has stolen base in 51 seasons? Hmm. I will say 120. Okay. Annie? A Padre pitcher? Yes. I will say an even hundo. I'll go with 100. Okay. The list, I believe, is 24 times long. That's it. (laughs) That's it. That's it. 24 times. Okay. You know, I was thinking Adam Eaton, and I remember he stole a bunch. And I see his name on there five times. I'm going, there must have been some other Adam Eatons on there, but it was just the one Adam Eaton. Yeah, you know, you got five, five Adam Eatons. He's got more than anybody else. So Randy did uh, the very first one in 1979. We haven't seen one uh, in uh, last season. We didn't see one. Tyson Ross in 2018. I think we actually have video of a couple of these, too, which is very exciting for me. Uh, the Greg Maddox getting it done twice uh, in his short Padre tenure is just freaking stellar for so many reasons, uh, as you'll see. But yeah, 24 times in Padre history uh, since Randy did it for the first time in 1979 has, has a pitcher Stolen a base. You got Mark Davis on there, Andy Ashby on there. Uh, some some notes on it. Thanks to our, our PR staff in the office for for putting this together for us. Uh, Ian's got the most, and then uh, those are the only other guys with more than one: Cashner, Maddox, and Juan Eichelberger, uh, who did that. So, all right, I forget which video is first call. My bad, but go ahead and and I assume it's Tyson Ross. There it is. They weren't holding him on, and he took full advantage against Jamison Tyon of the Pirates. And the infield. I mean, he almost looks a little like my bad, but I'm going to take it. You know, if you're not going to hold me, I'm going to go. Why not? Somebody in the dugout might have uh, given him the heads up. <laughs> That's great stuff. Uh, I believe this is Edwin Jackson from one of those way back Wednesday games a couple of years ago uh, against the Brewers. Again, playing behind him. Not going to hold us on. All right, we'll take it. No throw needed from uh, Manny Pena behind the dish. That's pretty good. And then I think the last video is one of the Maddox ones. Uh, not a good throw. Not a good throw in this game against the Braves. Is one of the again they're they're playing behind him. Look at the slide, Ben. That's just how they teach it. <laughs> hey, he slid to a complete stop, like an aircraft coming into a into the jetway at the end there. Nice and easy for Greg Maddox. I'm disappointed that Mark Grant never had a chance to seal a base. I mean, come on. And then where's the video of Randy's stolen base? He would have. I mean, I'm just trying to picture the grin that Randy would have had on his face standing out there at second base, and he would have given so much, you know what, to that pitcher and that catcher. He would have never let them live it down that he stole a base on them. I almost want to get Randy on the phone. I don't know if we have the technological capabilities to do that. If not, we'll ask him when he's when he's on the show again next week what the circumstances were of that. Uh, but Annie, I know you know you're like me and and Ben also the same way. You love these like little stupid things that that occur in baseball, and I think a pitcher stealing a base is pretty pretty near the top of the list. Yeah, exactly. Like during a game, a nine inning game, like that's the stuff you live for. You know what I mean? Like that's like that just makes you so happy. It's the stuff you're talking about for days after. Who do you think would be? I mean, I would put money on Chris Paddock. Who, who, who else would you put money on of the roster as we see it that would do it next? Maybe that's a good question, Annie. Really? Um, who might want to take off out there? I think did Nelson Lamet has any chance of getting to second base? I would think maybe you know he could sneak one sometime here. 
Yeah, he's an athlete. He, he's yeah. a big athletic guy. Uh, the first guy that is not really a starter, at least I guess the way we were anticipating it going out, but Luis Perdomo uh, would probably go to the top of my list. Yeah, he came up as a shortstop. Uh, he he does not walk around like a pitcher. If you see him during batting practice, he's got batting gloves coming out of his back pocket. He's carrying the bat on his shoulder like he's yeah. still a position <laughs> player. He a couple of years ago he had like the triples. You know, I forget the number now. He had like four or five triples in a season. It was the most a pitcher had had since the fifties. Um, so I would go Perdomo, but I, I like also where your head is at with Paddock because there's a certain amount of uh, gumption I think that is required. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it's it's situational. It's circumstantial. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, they got to be playing behind you, maybe not paying too much attention. Remember, Patty got thrown out from right field at first base that that time, though. That, that is true. <laughs> that is true. Really but, you know, he's Paddock someone that likes the to jacket on the base. Yeah. It can't be easy to steal when you're wearing the jacket. <laughs> uh, that's pretty good stuff. Uh, I like this comment that came in here from MLD Journey Mudcat only steals bases if there's soft serve waiting for him. That is. <laughs> Uh, obviously MLB journey knows Mudcat. There's uh there's something to that. Nobody I takes almost, I, more I almost went to the pizza on second base route. And then I thought he's got way more of a platform to get back at me. So I'm just going to not take my shot right now. <laughs> That's great stuff though. Uh, Randy Jones. Uh, and we'll get the story from him next week. We'll, we'll figure out the circumstances of his stolen base in 1979. Cause yeah, that's, but again, you know, go back to the DH thing. That could be it. That could be the end of that list. It could end up as 24 period. And uh, that would be sad. No, it'll happen again because even if you DH, you might need a pinch runner and extra innings. Uh, you know, like Perdomo, I could see pinch running in a 13th inning situation and maybe swiping a bag or something like that. It'll happen in baseball. Everything that can happen eventually does happen, Jesse. Yeah, that's fair. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. And you know, uh, Randy's really got like a grumpy old story about that. You know what I mean? Like Randy's got like some great story about someone sleeping on it, whatever, you know, like it's, he, you got to have him tell the story because I'm sure it will be entertaining. In my mind, <laughs> he got hit by a pitch. He was ticked off and he just like went on the first pitch. He went in spikes high, you know, on the shortstop or the second baseman, whoever was covering the bag. And he got in just ahead of the tag. The odds of that being the the actual case are, are probably not that good. It was likely, you know, they were, it was three and two or something. I don't know. I guess it couldn't be three and two, but the guy was playing behind him and, you know, they didn't pay any attention. And he took his legs aren't very long. That's a lot of steps, you know, to get from first to second base for Randy. Well, I know we'll be running back the audio of Ben saying that when we ask Randy to tell the story next week. Uh, absolutely. All right. So that was this date in Padre history. Uh, this date in baseball history, this one's pretty remarkable just because uh, it, it's two big names. One is Stan Musial collected his 3,000th hit in 1958, uh, the great Cardinal. Also in 1958, very same day, May 13th of 1958, uh, Willie Mays had a multi-homer, multi-triple game. And uh, that's another one. You think to yourself, well, that that can't have happened all that often in baseball history. I saw one tweet today, and I apologize because I didn't write down who who tweeted it, but it was one of the you know Twitter stat guys. He said, since Willie Mays did that on this date in 1958, had more, had more than one homer, won more than one triple in the same game, it has happened one more time. That's wow. it. It has only happened once that a guy had a multi-homer, multi-triple game, and I could give you 10,000 guesses as to who that player would be, and you would probably not come up with the correct answer, which is Dimitri Young of the Tigers in 2006. It's a lot of total bases. Yes. It's a lot of running around. Uh, anyway, the, the usual thing, this was pretty cool. Hey, credit to uh, Cole and Courage and Shannon and Nikki, everybody behind the scenes. Um, you know, usually we do this stuff. And if it was in the last 10, 15, 20 years, we get some video or something like that. We legitimately have video of Stan Musial's 3000th hit on this date in 1958. The kicker, though, is it has the audio of then Cardinal broadcaster Harry Carey. Have a listen. Here's the pitch. Right there, that is, into left field, hit number 3,000, a run is scored, Musial ran first, on his way to second with a double. Harry Carey, in 1958, with the very same enthusiasm that Harry Carey had in 1998. Uh, this was at Wrigley, but Harry uh, did not get to the Cubs for another 15 years or so after all of this. Uh, I know both of you guys, like me, big nerds, broadcasting, all of it. Harry Carey, 1958, feels very out of place in terms of the way I imagine most announcers sounding like Ben in 1958. Yes. And by the way, I very much reminiscent of Mel Proctor's call of Tony Gwynn's 3000th hit, uh, almost an homage by Mel. And I didn't even realize it toward uh, Harry Carey's 3000th hit call for Stan Musial. Great point. There it is. Yeah. 
Wrigley looking almost exactly the same also uh, is incredible. So anyway, fun stuff there. Uh, thanks for indulging us on, on this day in baseball history. Uh, as you guys both know, Annie and Ben, I have done a thing in which I sort of declared unilaterally, I'll admit that we were going to be KT Wiz fans in terms of the KBO. It continues to be more and more misery. Uh, I, I am now carrying around legitimate guilt that there are, I don't know, a dozen people or so on this planet who care about the KT Wiz that would not care about the KT Wiz if it weren't for me. And they just keep breaking our hearts. They fell to one in six last night. Another loss to NC Dinos, another extra inning loss, another extra inning loss in which they blew a lead in extra innings. That seems to be the theme here. This one went down in 10. They lost five to four. Uh, the Wiz scored in the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, and the 10th inning. Uh, to come back, to take a lead, and eventually uh, to blow it. Here's the uh, game-tying home run in the top of the ninth inning. Uh, this came from uh, Yuhan Jun of the Wiz, uh, you know, leading off in the ninth, down a run. I mean, he just whacks it and wraps it around the pole, deep down the left field line, and you're thinking to yourself, this is outstanding. We've tied the game in the ninth inning. Uh, they would go on to take a lead in the tenth. Unfortunately, that lead would not hold uh, Dinos tied it on a sack fly. Then uh, we threw a guy out at the plate as right-handed Korean Matt Strom is dealing with a bases loaded situation. And that would be the game winning hit for Dinos. All three of their last games have been extra inning losses. They play again tonight at two 30, trying to avoid the sweep. Annie, I, I feel badly. I'm sorry to you and everybody else. I understand how you feel, but I do not feel badly. Someone has to care about them. Like someone has to love these guys and why not us? So I, <laughs> I say we hold strong. Maybe they'll surprise us. You know, maybe they'll, they'll give us some great moments or some comedic moments either way, but someone's got to care about them. I'm still in amazement at right-handed Korean Strong because <laughs> that's, that's awesome. a perfect description. That oh, hair is so great. I mean, it's not just the hair, by the I way. It's no, like, it's not. It's the build it's the- and the delivery. He looks exactly like him. It's bugging me out. It's the look on his face, too. Like, it's just like it's everything. Yeah. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Strom's gonna hate us if he sees like <laughs> no, this guy's a, he's a handsome guy. I don't know, but like even the way he holds the ball at the belt. Yeah. Yes. Uh, tomorrow we'll have a side by side. I'll figure out who this guy is. I'll go to the box score and get it in, in the is roster. It mirror or we'll get a side by side with Strom. Maybe uh, AJ Preller if he's not busy. He did such a good job overhauling the Padres bullpen this off season. Can uh, be a consultant for the KT Wiz yesterday. <laughs> yeah, there you go. After the bullpen blew another one yesterday, I said, would it be inappropriate for me to suggest we can lend them Kirby Yates and Drew Pomerantz just so those guys can stay fresh, get some work in, and also the whiz uh, can can be helpful. Uh, oops, wrong one. Sorry. Uh, somebody asked about Despagne. Uh, I like that one. That was a good one. Bring it back. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, I'm sorry. I, should, I, shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have run it off there. He's being uh, very uh, complimentary of all of us, which we appreciate. Uh yeah, Despagne pitched. Somebody asked if Despagne has pitched. Uh, he has twice, and twice uh, the bullpen has blown what should have been a win uh, for Rodriguez and Despagne, including two days ago. Last night it was William Cuevas. A cup of coffee with the Red Sox and the Tigers. Uh, they're, they're third of their three foreign players. Uh, he allowed uh, – he was stellar, like six innings, four hits, a run. I mean, bullpen bullpen an issue uh, for, for our KT Wiz. And, again, trying to avoid the sweep. Um, one of the things for all of us who are, who are following – the KBO is trying to find legitimate sources of merchandise. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk to Boog Shambi, who's been calling the games on, on ESPN coming up in a few minutes. And I think he talks about this. Uh, we had a long conversation off the air, so it might've been then, but like people are having a hard time finding stuff and the KBO wasn't really ready for this. They didn't expect to have the merchandise explosion that they have. Uh, but Dan Kurtz, who is my KBO on Twitter and one of the great sources of information, he tweeted this link earlier today. He said, this is a legitimate site. Uh, where you can order stuff and they even give it to you uh, in American dollars. Um, so this was the extent of the whiz stuff that they had. I really want a hat, um, which is disappointing. So that first thing is a, like a fleece rollout blanket type deal. I think the jersey is a pillow, but I'm not sure. There's the sweet cape thing. Uh, Vic and Dory keychain, the mascots, tote bag, uh, the two bandanas. And then those are mouse pads, the last two things. Uh, Vic and Dory. Yeah, it's pretty good. So I don't know if anybody... Uh, I'm not taking a cut or anything like that. But if anybody's interesting, interested, there's the information. I'm sure I'll, I'll add something to my collection at some point. They're not affiliated with us. We're not endorsing them. Uh, I, I hope they don't steal your credit card information. But uh, there, <laughs> there you go. Here, How about this? So the mascots you see. Uh, oh, can we put it back, Cole? Sorry. 
on you can look at the the keychain or at the the mouse pads. You have Dory and Vic. So I've known their names. I've known what they look like for a little while now. And I'm a moron. Uh, Katie Nolan on her ESPN show, I think it was last night, she had Gritty on, the Flyers mascot. And they were breaking down all the different mascots of the KBO. He loved Vic and Dory, by the way. But she said, oh, KT Wiz, they have Vic and Dory. If you say it together, victory. (laughs) I had not put that together in three weeks of talking about the KT Wiz. And I am humiliated. That's because they've had no victories. So ah, I just have not been able to. I'm, I'm glad there's no hat either. Jesse, I, I saw that in like two seconds when you said her name. <laughs> Dory Vic, oh, Victory. Yeah. I wish someone would have filled me in. It's all I can <laughs> <laughs> It was very clever. Um, I remember as a kid, though, Winnie the Pooh. It took me way too long to figure out Kanga and Rue. Uh, same thing. <laughs> Must be a part of my brain that's messed. It's anyway, good. that's the... Uh, the latest on the whiz, it is a sad state of affairs, unfortunately, but also just seven games into the season. I think they're trying to play all 144. So a long way to go for the whiz, uh, who finished 500 for the first time last year. We thought they were a team on the rise, but a, a bumpy start, certainly, to 2020 for, for the KT whiz. All right, mentioned Boog Shambi, uh, just uh, one of the absolute best broadcasters in all of baseball. You see his work on ESPN, a wonderful, wonderful human being, and he is doing uh, three KBO games a week on ESPN now. Uh, talk to him about that experience and just sort of the uh, general state of things earlier this afternoon. Enjoy. We really do appreciate the time. Uh, let's let's jump right into the KBO stuff. Obviously, the attention on that league is uh, extraordinary and very out of the usual, but also I think very welcome for a lot of us. What, what was that experience like calling the, those first few games on ESPN? I described it. It was like log rolling for like three hours and 15 minutes and you're just trying to not fall in like that was that was kind of the kind of the gist of it you just deal with a lot of different things and obviously a big part of it is you don't know you know the the names and the players are foreign literally and figuratively so you're trying to learn about who's good um what are we trying to focus on and then you're bringing in guests and interviewing them to talk a little mlb to try and keep it a little bit light to inform them on the KBO. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a juggling act, but it was, I mean, it's still fun. It's just, I don't think everybody gets that just like, if you just make me call the game off this monitor and and we don't have control of a single shot, all of a sudden they just show somebody in the dugout, I'm going to be like, and there's that guy. So it's, uh, I mean, look, it, I'm sure you feel the same way, but we all miss it, man. So, you know, getting a chance to, you know, to do do the thing we love to do. But part of it is being in person, seeing each other. You know, I mean, I think that I'm sure that that's one of the things you have to miss. Just, man, seeing the other broadcasters and just checking in and seeing the players and that interaction and, and all that stuff. So. Yeah, we, we had your great, great friend Len Casper on the show yesterday. The Cubs were supposed to be here this weekend for a four-game series. And, like, afterwards, I remarked to somebody, like, that made me sad. Like, you know, like it was it was great talking to him, but it would have been much better to, to be able to see him in person. And, and I think that goes along with it. From a prep standpoint, and maybe I'm getting too nitty-gritty broadcaster for everybody, I mean, what what have you been able to do for these games? I mean, it's like the one website, you know, my KBO is something we've all become familiar with. But like, when did the prep start? How deep have you been able to dive into these guys? So we have another website that we're using now called Scout Dragon that's uh, that's been helpful. I've talked to a number of American players, so I've had extended conversations with Brett Pill, who was over there and is now a double-A hitting coach in the Dodgers organization at Tulsa. Josh Lindblom and I have talked multiple times for extended periods. Trey Hillman, Merrill Kelly. Um, and then the guys that are over there, I spoke with Jamie Romack today. And so you're just trying to get a sense for what the league is about, what it's like. And that's a big part of the prep. There's not a ton of stuff available online, you know, in, in terms of English speaking. I mean, they tweeted out the other day, uh, they Daniel Kim tweeted out the other day that I, I guess the league is getting some asks for merch, you know, from people stateside and they weren't quite prepared for that. So 
you know, you can imagine in terms of information, you just you sort of do what you can. I think that you can relate to the idea. One of the things that is hard, I did the WBC in 06 and 09, and I had the Far East bracket both those years as part of it. And the Far East teams, uh, for the most part, don't love giving up the lineups early. And when the names aren't by rote, and for me, I have to read them to you know, because I want to try to get them right. And they're coming in late. It's it's hard. So that's that's one of the things that's that's difficult. But you just gotta you kind of gotta hang with them. Yeah. Well, you're pulling it off masterfully. I think the entire crew at ESPN doing a great job giving us some baseball. As for the actual on field stuff, I, I think I thought Jeff Patson. We had him on last week. He put it really really well. He said some of these games, it's like watching baseball ten or fifteen years ago, uh, sort of before the launch angle revolution, before the three true outcomes kind of all took over it's kind of a nice brand of baseball. It's very different, I think, than what we've become used to seeing the last couple of years. I, what I would tell you is it, it really, it's the middle ground between Japan um, and the United States. They're trying still to hit the three-run homer. They had bigger players than in Japan. They're swinging hard and, and looking to do damage. There's not been a lot of bunting. Now, with that said, there's way more contact. So those home runs aren't to the same level. Now, they did dejuice the ball last year. It seems like this year it's back to the 14th or 18 levels. But it doesn't come with the same level of strikeouts. So it's to me, it's what MLB should be striving for, and that is the ball is leaving the park a lot. Everybody likes homers. That, by the way, my editorial comment, nobody ever complains about homers. Nobody ever leaves the ballpark and says, you know, the problem with today's game, rolling over the fence too much. It's what comes with the homers. It's all the strikeouts and the walks. And in the KBO, the home runs come with some walks, but not not the strikeout rate that um, that you see over here. In fact, it's rare that you see a pitcher average a strikeout in an inning. Yeah, I mean, it's been fascinating looking at the box scores. I mean, uh, the starters, you know, it's sometimes five, six innings, two, three strikeouts. And it's obviously so different than what we're dealing with uh, in MLB. Uh, Broader picture, it certainly relates to what's happening in the KBO. But what will happen if they are able to get things figured out to play games this year in MLB, it seems like. And that's broadcasting games without fans. Don and Mudd and I have talked about it. Um, it's, It's obviously an adjustment, you know, for announcers. Do you have a feeling, a sense of, of what that could be like for all of us and, and obviously for the viewers and the listeners as well? How about my setup, by the way? I got the sun bouncing off one of these buildings, and so it's coming in, and I'm damn yeah, sorry. Concrete um, I, uh, yeah, I, I, it, it, look, it'll be hard. It's going to be hard for the players, too, by the way. Yeah. You know, it, you've been on, you know, a B game on a backfield or something like that, and, and it sucks the life out of it. So, it will be different. That's one of the things with these games that's weird is not only am I doing it, you know, in my pajamas in my office, but it's also that, yeah, there's no, there's not that, that crowd burst that you're used to. Look, I think it, it, it's, it'll be a bummer, uh, but it's the most likely scenario. I don't personally think that this is a straw man, but, you know, you go on to 9 million talk shows. I'm surprised that people are surprised when I say, I don't think we're going to see fans at sporting events, any sport, football, pro or college, NBA, college, NHL, baseball. I don't think we will see fans in stands by the end of the year. Yeah, I I certainly don't disagree with that sentiment. Obviously, you know, things can change rapidly, but that appears to be the trajectory that we're on. If for no other reason than a a better safe than sorry thing. Uh, You mentioned the the light shining off the building. You're in New York, you're in the city. What's, what's, what's that been like? Obviously the busiest place in our country reduced to whatever it is. Um, It was scary for about three weeks. I mean, it, it was, it was something out of a movie. If, if you, if you get a chance and go on my my social media, I mean, I've taken some pictures that like there was a stretch where if I walked like a few blocks over to Park Avenue, I would I would need one minute 
And I could take a 30 block photo where there's not a single car, which is incredible. And so, and it was, you know, dark and a little cold and people were staying inside and it was really, yeah, it was scary. And you'd have some anxiety about, you know, making sure you had your mask on and did you touch your face after touching that thing or whatever. Um, and I think the other thing too, is that the lack of vehicular traffic and the lack of pedestrian traffic meant less noise. And then you hear the sirens and that is, uh, a little bit scary, a little bit disconcerting. It's still a factor now. It's just not as noisy, man. Yeah. That's a, that's a big thing. The soundtrack of the city completely altered. Uh, really appreciate it. One of the great voices in our game, certainly. Uh, glad we have some KBO, uh, KBO as much of a challenge yeah. as it is for, for you and the whole crew. I mean, it's, it's a big deal, I think, for a lot of people, myself included, watching. So thanks for the time and for catching up. And, and great to see you and hopefully at a ballpark soon. Yeah, I hope so, too. Good to see you, Jess. All right, it's a Boog Shambi of ESPN, John Shambi. Uh, just to make it personal for half a second, I met him probably for the first time about 16 years ago. He's on the short list of, I don't know, eight, 10 people that have uh, been people I would say that I wouldn't be here right now doing the job that I do without him. So thanks to, to Boog, always a, a wonderful guy to catch up with. And he's, he's as good as it gets, man. Uh, he really is. He brought up a great point, too, and something I feel like we haven't discussed enough, bring back Ben and Annie, um, the weirdness for the players. Uh, for for games, you know, we've talked about it from a broadcast standpoint, of course, because that's where all our heads are at. Uh, but but Annie, you you spent so much time down on the field and in the dugout around these guys and hearing everything and the atmosphere of the place. Uh, it could be very odd for the players. That could be a real adjustment that has to be made. There is no doubt about it. I mean, players obviously want to play. Not having fans in the stands is something that you know that's just the state of affairs, and they can't control it. But the fans, I mean, the energy of the stadium, for better or for worse, is what kind of, you know, gets you going. I mean, it, it can lift up a game. It can drop down a game. It just is. It's so big. It's such a big part of the game. I think people will get more and more used to it, but I don't think that they'll ever get that comfortable with it. I think that they will welcome fans back in as soon as they can have them because um, it is. It's just going to be weird. I think um, it's another one of those issues where we say, hey, what play, how will players respond? Well, they'll, they'll each respond a little differently. There are some guys who are so tunnel vision when they start a game that I'm not sure that they notice anything that's going on other than ball coming out of the pitcher's hand and uh, what they're thinking about and what they're supposed to be doing. And, and others absolutely feed off the crowd and the energy, and it just elevates their game to another level. So I mean, you'll have some players who probably won't be affected a lot and others who will have a big adjustment period if, you know, we do have baseball for the rest of this year without any fans in the stands. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. I think it was the five-year anniversary of that game without fans in Baltimore between the White Sox and the Orioles uh, after the the civil unrest that was going on in that city. And, yeah, there are a lot of weird things about it, they said, from, like, the umpire being way too loud at the start when he called a strike, you know, all the way on down to your screaming instructions to your fielders from the dugout, and you look over and, like, oh, the other team can hear everything we're doing. So, uh, look, everybody adjusts. We know that. But there's definitely some odd things there. I thought Boog also really thoughtful, interesting stuff about the the brand of baseball that's being played in Korea and sort of uh, maybe that's something that MLB could aspire to. Uh, we'll see. All right. Uh, thanks again to to Boog for coming on. Uh, how about our behind the scenes, guys? Uh, the name of the pitcher uh, for the Wiz is Lee Dae-yoon. He is 31 years old, the right-hander. We called him, I believe, the uh, right-handed Korean Matt Strom. How about this? I mean, <laughs> it's really good. He The brim needs to be a little flatter. Uh, but, and obviously righty lefty situation, facial hair, different outside of that. That's a very good side by side. <laughs> this is excellent. This is excellent. <laughs> this is my favorite thing that's happened in weeks on the show. I think, uh, anytime Ben is here, we try and get a golf thing in one way or the other. Great job, Cole, Shannon, everybody else back there. Uh, yeah, uh, the Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, Phil Mickelson, Tiger Woods tournament, uh, whatever it is, I think is still on. We've had this video like ready to go for days. I think we've been waiting for Ben to be here. Uh, I'm a big Peyton Manning fan, not necessarily from like a football standpoint, although obviously Hall of Famer. I've just always kind of enjoyed his personality and his sense. We have this argument on our show, Jesse, because I also like Peyton Manning's quirky southern kind of dad joke humor and woods cannot stand peyton manning at all <laughs> it's consistent at plays 
that place. I'm not surprised by that. So they were, I guess they did, uh, you know, a call the other day to promote, you know, their, their charity tournament that they're playing uh, for golf. And the clip that kind of went around that we're going to have some fun with here is basically just however many seconds of Peyton Manning roasting Tom Brady, lighting him on fire. And, and nobody talks to Tom Brady like this in public. So I enjoyed it very much. Uh, we'll play it here and then we'll have uh, Ben and Annie share their thoughts. Ernie, the course, you know, the tournament had to be in Florida. You know, after Tom's B and E arrest, uh, you know, with the ankle monitor, he couldn't leave the state, uh, so it had to be in Florida. Uh, Tiger and I talked to the sheriff in Tampa. He's going to be allowed to go to Palm Beach to play. Uh, I'll be honest; I've never played Tom very well on his home turf, and so maybe this is considered a neutral site. And I would have loved to have had this tournament. In a place where they don't like Tom very much, Indianapolis, Denver, Boston, you know, after he just betrayed them and broke their hearts. So Palm Beach is the best we can probably do. Uh, look, I think the teams are fair. I think, uh, you know, Phil chose the right partner and Tom together. You know, they have 11 championships. Tiger and I have 17, the way I count it, right, Tiger? <laughs> Ernie, the course is <laughs> just lighting him on fire. That's great stuff. Uh, ben, what's your favorite aspect? Well, uh, the fact that he turned that mistake in when Tom Brady accidentally walked into a neighbor's house as opposed to his new offensive coordinator and shocked the heck out of someone in Florida, called it his B&E <laughs> arrest. <laughs> that just set the tone for everything. And then, of course, he goes really dry at the end. Cities where, you know, they hate Tom Brady, Indianapolis, Denver, Boston. <laughs> he just likes to just dig in the needle just a little bit more. Yeah, I, I could watch that kind of thing all day. I mean, that's just, that's classic. That's as authentic as probably you're going to get between uh, between those kind of guys. And they know each other well, obviously, and, and can do that sort of thing. But I also love Tiger just kind of leaning back mm -hmm. and watching the whole thing and just kind of, you know, chiming in with a, with a few laughs there. That was Tiger was just glad that they weren't taking shots at him. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's some material there. Uh, Phil, Phil looked like he was almost, and maybe he wasn't, but he almost looked a little surprised. Like, oh, I can't believe this guy's like still going, which I love. But Andy, I think he hit it on the head, and that's why it was so compelling to me is like, these guys are so guarded anytime they're on camera, they have a microphone in front of their faces. And I understand why I'd be the same way. I think, unfortunately, if I was one of them, but like to see the guard down just enough to see some like real deal, sort of like if they were in a locker room together, that would be, I think, a lot of how it would sound. Yeah, it's so good. That's the sort of thing, exactly, Jesse. Like, you know, you guys know, you, you know, you know, Ben knows when you're in a clubhouse in a locker room and you're just hearing guys, you know, trash talk each other, that's, that's the best. I mean, it's hilarious. It's awesome. It's always funnier, you know, as it ramps up. And so that is exactly what you would be hearing. And I'm sure it would get even more um, expletive ridden and, and get taken to the next level, you know, whether if there was no camera. So, so that's about as good as you're going to get between those kind of guys who are all so, so talented and so good. I just love that sort of thing. The question is, does Peyton Manning come up with his own material or does he have a writer <laughs> that kind of helps him work it out? I don't know. Anything is possible. Anything is possible. He had a, he had a very successful uh, hosting stint of Saturday Night Live. I'm sure he kept some phone numbers. Uh, so you <laughs> never really know. Uh, all right, great stuff. Uh, we're like out of time on this one. We'll, we'll save Kirby Yates for tomorrow's show. Uh, taped that interview yesterday. Uh, but just normal stuff with Kirby. And uh, we'll, we'll catch up with the All-Star Closer tomorrow's show. Don and Mud, I believe, are expected to be back as well for their Thursday special. Uh, before we get going, I want to let you know, coming up in about a half an hour, uh, Fox Sports San Diego replaying uh, the first game of that final series at Dodger Stadium in the 1996 season. Jody Reed. Yeah. Uh, as this is as good as it gets uh, for Padre fans. Uh, pennant on the line, division on the line, uh, going to Dodger Stadium and winning three straight, September 27, 28, 29, two of those games in extra innings. So the first game of that three-game series airing tonight at 7 on Fox Sports San Diego, game two tomorrow night, and uh, game three, I think, the following night. So uh, wonderful stuff to look back on as Cammy just demolishes that one. <laughs> My goodness. Oh, that swing. That's so That's good. So that's uh, 7 o'clock tonight on Fox Sports San Diego. One last postscript on the uh, Randy Jones stolen base. We still need to get the rest of the story from Randy, uh, but Jeff Pratt, who has uh, as much Padre trivia in his brain as any person alive, uh, sent a Twitter message. He said it was off Mike Scott, who was pitching the Mets at that point. Uh, he would go on, of course, uh, to do great things with the Astros a few years later in the mid-'80s. 
but it was off Mike Scott, and apparently it was a Mike Scott error that allowed Randy to reach base. And then Randy, a little salt in the wound uh, mm-hmm. by stealing seconds. So we'll get some more info on the very first stolen base by a pitcher in Padre history. Uh, this date in 19, was it 79? Uh, ben, Annie, thank you both very much. Appreciate Thanks, it. Jesse. Thanks, guys. Always a pleasure with you, too, and appreciate you coming on. Uh, thanks uh, to Boog Shambi, also to uh, our friend Alberto Cortez of Mama's Kitchen. Great stuff with him. As mentioned, back tomorrow at 5.30, Kirby Yates will join us. Don and Mud will be here for their weekly session. We will have a great time. Thanks to everybody who helped out behind the scenes. And, of course, everybody who joined us, whether it was Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or Twitch. Beautiful evening downtown. If only there was a baseball game there tonight. Hopefully someday soon. Have a great night, everybody. Stay safe.